So we are going through the what we call the big story of the Bible this year, and we're, we've just started this month, and uh, we've been thinking <clears throat> about some of the origin, what we call the origin stories, some of the early stories in the Bible. We have been looking at three of those uh, incidents in the life of Abraham. Um, we've been thinking about the following themes. We've been thinking about how God calls us to himself. Uh, last week, Andy Harding was talking about how having a relationship with God is not just responding to a call or saying a prayer, but it's entering into a covenant. And this is both Old Testament and New Testament. In fact, I'm sure most of you are aware of that. Our Bible is in two parts. What we call the Old Testament and New Testament are the Old Covenant and New Covenant. So from the beginning, God enters into a covenant agreement where he commits himself to his people, says, I am fully, 100%, wholeheartedly committed to you. Uh, will you respond to me? Will you commit yourself to me? <clears throat> so often in our culture today, we, we can often trivialize and minimize. Sometimes we're not conscious how we're doing it, of what it means to have a relationship with God. Just say a quick prayer and it will all happen. No, no. We enter into an agreement, a covenant with God as Christians through Jesus. And that will be another sermon for, for another day. But today we're thinking about the theme of testing. We have a God who leads us sometimes into times of testing. And I'm sure as I talk through this message, some, many of you will relate to that. I'm sure there's times in your life, maybe some of you here today are going through that at the moment. Maybe you feel you're in the time of testing, or you've got questions and you're saying, God, why is this happening? You're wrestling with God and wrestling with these questions. Well, hopefully some of what we say today will be three parts of the story of Abraham are for all of us. We all have a God who calls us. We all have a God who wants to be in relationship with us through covenant. We all have a God who is prepared to test us um, not to destroy our faith, but as we're going to see, to prove and to make our faith stronger and more genuine. So, <clears throat> I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 22. And I, <clears throat> this is a passage where, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that maybe some of you have heard a number of times. Uh, you've probably heard sermons on it. If you've been a Christian for some time, you will have read this. It's one of the key chapters in the whole Bible. It's a foundational chapter for the whole history of the people of Israel. It's a chapter that helps us to understand as Christians what happened on the cross when Jesus died for us. So often we, 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 we read um, from the New Testament and we, we, we read these passages and we go back to the Old Testament. And so we should because these stories open up perspectives on what the New Testament teaches. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to read uh, all 19 verses of chapter 22. If you prefer to listen, that's absolutely fine. Um, but I want you to try to listen with new ears. Or if you're looking at it, to look at the story, look at the text with new eyes. Even if you've heard it many times before. This is the word of God. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Abraham spoke up, said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there. He arranged the wood on it. Then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand. He took a knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by the horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of literally the gates of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. As I read this passage today and read it to you, what are you thinking? What was going on in your mind? or in your heart, whatever you want to um, say, as I was reading that. I think there's at least three different reactions, maybe others that have been going on today. I'm sure there's some of you who've heard this passage before, you've heard it read, and I'm reading it, you're going, no big deal. God is God. God can do whatever he wants. That's okay. I'm comfortable with it. If God wants to do that, God can do that because he's God. We don't tell God what to do. He's God and does whatever he wants. No big deal. There might be others who are going, hmm, a bit uncomfortable with that passage, but it all turned out well in the end. Okay, sometimes things don't go well, but we all know that they'll turn out well in the end. So that helps you to cope, or maybe, with the things that go beforehand. 
Okay, you've got struggles with it, but you're prepared to kind of not think about those too much because you know the end of the story. And there may be some of you here today, like me, who are going, what the heck was that all about? God told him to do what? With his son? Really? And that's what God is like? Brothers and sisters, we've just watched a very harrowing short video of child trafficking in the Philippines. You may or may not know there's a major movie that's coming at the moment called Sound of Freedom, starring Jim Cavazell, the guy who played um, Jesus in Passion of the Christ. This movie, everyone I've heard who's gone to see it is saying it's one of the most incredible movies they've seen, and it's on this very topic. If you haven't had a chance to see it, I encourage you to go see it. But when you hear that, and we, we live in a world where children are taken and are sacrificed, you know, sometimes literally lose their lives, and we read a passage like this and we're inoculated to it, this passage is meant to get under your skin. This passage is meant to disturb you. It's not meant to make you comfortable. The Jewish people who, who take this text, they wrestle with it and have wrestled with it for thousands of years. They argue, they debate it, they try to understand it, come up with interpretations and sometimes change their interpretations. Um, John and Jenny Story and I were at an event last Saturday at the Faith Mission and there was a speaker from Jerusalem who was talking about how to read the Hebrew Bible. And he said, Jews read their Bibles and leave with questions. Christians want answers. <laughs> Jews read their Bible and are happy to leave with questions. Christians want it all explained and want the answers. And this passage, as I'm going to share a little bit with you today, hopefully I'll help get a little bit more clarity on what's going on here, but I'm sure you will leave here with questions today. And that's okay, because that's what this passage is trying to do. It's trying to disturb us. So, let's begin. After these things, um, the NIV says sometime later, the text literally says, after these things, God tested Abraham. After what things? In the last few weeks, we've been telling you the good bits about Abraham. We've been painting this picture of this great man, this amazing man who trusted God. He left his home. He went off to where God told him to go, and he obeyed God. God gave him this amazing promise that he was going to give him um, a great nation through, was going to come about through him. He was going to give him a land, um, and, and Abraham believed God. And then last week, Andy was talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham. And in that passage last week, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, this is the right thing. He did the right thing. But there's a lot of things we haven't told you about Abraham. A lot of bits in the story from chapter 12 to chapter 22 in the last 10 chapters that we haven't had time to tell you. So I'm going to give you a very quick snapshot of the other side to Abraham. One time I was listening to a message when I lived in York. This guy was saying, every human being is like the moon. We all have a dark side. Notice the way I said that. <laughs> so, what things? After Abraham left his home in Ur 
and he went off to this new land. And after God had made him a promise, the very next thing Abraham did is he went down to Egypt. And when he was in Egypt, he accumulated a lot of wealth, a lot of possessions, and a lot of servants. And one of those servants was a young girl called Hagar. And Abraham fell in love with her. A servant girl from Egypt that he had acquired as property. He brings this girl and many others back to the promised land. Then God appears to him again, makes the covenant with him. And after God did that, Abraham enters into this kind of um, discussion with God about his nephew Lot. His nephew Lot had gone to live in this awful, wicked city. And God said, this city is so wicked, I'm going to destroy it. We read Genesis 18, 19 as though good old godly Abraham interceded for it. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He argued with God. He said, God, would you destroy this city if 50 people were left in it? How about 40 people? He's playing a game with God. How about 10 people, God? Are you still going to destroy it? Uh, Abraham, do you know what they do in that city? Do you know what's going to happen to your nephew Lot and his wife and daughters if I don't intervene in that city? And you're debating with me what I should do to a wicked city where they gang rape people, Abraham? Hmm, what's going on? And then the next chapter, Abraham, having got the promise, and he's waiting and waiting and waiting, decides he can't wait anymore, so he goes to Hagar, the slave girl from Egypt that he had brought up with him and taken, and he has sex with her. And he has a son, a little boy called Ishmael. And he says, oh God, that Ishmael may live under your blessing. If he would live under your blessing, God says, no. That's not how it works, Abraham. I will bless this boy, even though you stepped out of my will, even though you've done things that I never commanded you to do, I am going to show how committed I am to you and how much I'm not going to love, leave you, Abraham. I'm going to show my commitment to you, even by blessing you when you do things I did not ask you to do. Roll on the story. Eventually, God intervenes. And he announces to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah. Abraham had been married to Sarah at this time. Think of what is Sarah thinking when Abraham's doing all of this with Hagar? Think about that. Think about the people in the Bible that um, it doesn't always mention what's going on in their minds. So Sarah receives a boy, a little child called Isaac. God blesses them. And what happens next? Ishmael shows up. And he taunts them. He doesn't say what he does, but he taunts Sarah and Isaac. And Sarah says, get that woman and that boy out of my house now. And send them away to Abraham. Gives you a little bit of sense of what's going on in the dynamics between these people. And Abraham says this. This is how Abraham responded. The matter greatly distressed Abraham because it concerned his son. Hmm. What about the son that God has given you, Abraham? So Hagar goes off to a place called Beersheba. Where is Abraham in this passage? If we go to the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 21, Abraham planted a tree in Beersheba and stayed there in the land of the Philistines for a long time.
time. What are you doing in Beersheba? Who's in Beersheba? Not Sarah, not Isaac, Hagar and Ishmael. So all of that is going on behind the scenes. And this helps to understand why God is intervening in this chapter. Good old father Abraham is not very good sometimes. And he's doing a lot of things that God is not pleased with. He, he believes God. There's no doubt about that. He, he's wrestling with that. He's seeking God. At the end of the, the previous chapter, it says, for the second time in his life, first time is when he left Ur, second time in his life, he calls in the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Abraham is wrestling, and God's wrestling with him. And so he tests him. So what, are we, what is testing? What do we mean when we say testing? Here's some other words that I put up on the screen that might help you a little bit understand what this means and when God tests people, why he tests people, what's he trying to do? Some of these words, prove. Trying to prove the genuineness of someone's faith. Approve, he's trying to approve someone. Even Jesus went through testing. Um, went through in the wilderness after his baptism. And Jesus was not tested because there was something wrong in him. Jesus was tested to show that there wasn't something wrong in him. Okay? He was tested to show that he was the Son of God, fully obedient to his Father, and we can trust him. He will achieve what God has sent him to do. Not because there was any doubt. Examine discern and make fit for use. So Abraham, I need to find out what your faith is like. I need to find out, Abraham, what your faith is going to lead you to do. And so God speaks to him. So let's go through some of these um, acts. It's like a play with different acts. Let's look at the command. Verse 2, take your son, your only son. Oh, pause. Your only son? really? Is this Abraham's only son? No, it's not Abraham's only son. Abraham has another son. God is distinguishing the son that he had given him, Isaac, whom you love. How much do you love him, Abraham? How much does he mean to you? Does he mean as much to you as he means to me? This is the boy I promised I was going to give you. This is the boy through whom all my plans for the history of humanity are going to come into being. There's going to be, a, not that he said this, there's going to be a group of people sitting in a church in Edinburgh um, in October, sorry, in September in 2023, and they're going to be in that building because of Isaac. If it wasn't for Isaac, nothing would have come into being. There would be no nation of Israel, there would be no sacrifices, there'd be no Messiah, there'd be no promise, there would be no Jesus. Nothing would have come into being unless God had given this boy. Everything comes through him, Abraham. That's how important he is to me. That's how valuable he is to me. How valuable is he to you, Abraham? Really, how valuable is he to you? That's the command. Now, I love the NIV. Hands up, I do. When I became Christian or dedicated my life to God in 1978, I went out and I bought a Bible for myself. I didn't really have one and I bought an NIV. They'd just recently come out. And so all of my Christian life, I've been an NIV reader and lover. And I appreciate it, except when it takes license with the text and thus isn't very helpful. 
So in the NIV, it says, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. It doesn't say sacrifice. The word sacrifice is not in the text. The translators have imposed it there. There is a Hebrew word for sacrifice. It's quoted lots of times. When God wants people to sacrifice, he inspires people to use the word sacrifice, okay? To make it clear, that's what I want you to do. doesn't do it here. It's not in the text. So what does it say? God said to him, go up and offer up. Go up and offer him up to me. Give him to me. Later on in the, um, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, God laid down this law for his people. It's called the law of the firstborn. The law of the firstborn simply stated, when God blesses you with a child, your firstborn child, give him up to God. It's not talking about sacrificing him. It's not talking about harming him or killing him. It's like, give him over to me. Give him over to me because I've given him to you. Give him over to me that I can bless him, that I can protect him, that I can use him, that I can fulfill my purposes in his life. Give him over to me because you show me your appreciation. It was the same with offerings. And, and, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. When we give God our, our finances, our, our money, our possessions, we don't give God what's left over. We give God first. Then we live on what's left over. That was the offerings as well. So the firstborn, God says, give him over to me because I gave him to you in the first place. And it was a, a, an act of trust. God, if you've blessed us with this child, we trust you to bless us with more children. So it's an act of trust. How much do you love him? Offer him up to me, Abraham. So Abraham decides what he's going to do is what we read next. Let me just say this. Um, one other thing we need to understand about Abraham is he didn't always know God. He believed in something very different. At the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua is making this speech, and he's reminding the people of Israel who were in the land by this time about their father, Abraham. This is what Joshua says about Abraham. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, who was Abraham's brother, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped, literally the word means they served other gods. So there was a time when Abraham didn't know this God, didn't follow this God, didn't listen to this God, knew nothing about him. But he did serve other gods. You have to trust me in this. You can research it in a good Bible dictionary or a commentary. But what did the people in the land where Abraham came from do to children? They killed them. They sacrificed them. They sacrificed them to atone for their sins. They gave up their children to get the gods, to make the gods happy. Thinking if we can sacrifice our children, God will bless us. That's the culture that Abraham came from. And that's the kind of God he served. But I took your father Abraham from this land and from his culture, beyond the Euphrates. I led him throughout Canaan. I multiplied his seed and I gave him Isaac. See what's going on? God has got to change this man's complete understanding of what God is like and what it means to know God and follow him. And in case 
you know, God need to make it clear, he did. In Deuteronomy, there's many other passages. God says very, very clearly what his people are not to be like. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things. The Lord hates, they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Abraham, I'm really not like that. And you need to understand that if you're going to follow me, then I am not that kind of God. So let's go to the next act. The next act is the journey. Abraham gets up in the morning, saddles his donkey, gets two of his servants, cuts wood for a burnt offering, and sets out for a place that God tells him about. So he's making all of these preparations. Then we come to the conversation. So after three days, um, Abraham eventually sees Mount Moriah. He sees the mountain that God had told him to go to. But again, We've got to use our imagination in this. If you're on a three-day journey and you've come out of a background of sacrificing children and you think that God is telling you to do that to this boy, what's going on in your mind? Honestly, what are you thinking? Are you wrestling with this? You're saying, I- I'm doing this and I'm going there. What's going to happen? I mean, I know in the New Testament it says um, that Abraham had got to the stage where he felt, if this boy dies, I believe that God could even raise him from the dead, okay? Um, But he's still prepared to kill him, all right? And and we use that as a sign of his faith, and it, it is to a degree, but he's wrestling with it, okay? He's struggling with it, okay? And he's almost trying to rationalize himself. Maybe God's going to do that, but I don't know. I don't know. And then there's the conversation. Um, When they go, Isaac um, speaks to his father. He addresses him. Abraham responds. And Isaac says in verse 7, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? We're missing something, Dad. Even Isaac saw it. Even Isaac knew this is not how God works. This is not what pleases God. There's got to be a lamb for the offering. And Abraham had not told him yet what they were going to do. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And you could read that as a bold declaration of faith that Abraham has figured this out and he knows what's going to happen, but he doesn't. He's still struggling. This is an expression of hope, okay? It's an inspired statement, yes, but he's a statement of hope. What he's literally saying is, God will see to it. It's the word for see, God will take care of it. I don't know how. I'm struggling with this, but God will see to it, and a lamb will be provided. Abraham's words, don't want to jump too far ahead to the end of my message, were very, very prophetic, not just for this text. So that's the conversation. So what happened next? Let's look at the binding. In the Jewish culture, they call this story the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. And um, it's a very, as I said earlier, a very famous passage for them. They wrestled with the Akedah for many, many years, the binding of Isaac. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, this is the only place this word bound is used. Nowhere else. Abraham built an altar. He arranged the woods. He took his son Isaac and he binds him 
to the altar on top of the wood. He reaches out his hand, taking the knife in order to slay his son. That's the actions that this man is prepared to go to. And in the midst of that, God speaks. God speaks very, very directly. The angel of the Lord, verse 11, called out to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham! It's a little bit like if you, many of you have got children and you see your little one go towards a busy road and there's a car coming. And you're going, Philip, Philip! Because the car's about to come. That's what this is doing. This is not, this is a very, very direct sign. Abraham, just stop! Just stop! That's what this is about. Walter Brueggemann in his commentary says, anytime God speaks twice in the Bible, it's to get someone to stop right there in their tracks. Okay. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Every time God is trying to get people's attention and stop them in a course of action that is going to be disastrous if they follow through. Here I am, he replied, then God speaks again two times. Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. I am not the kind of God who sacrifices children, Abraham. And somehow we need to eradicate that from your thinking. That does not please me. I get no glory whatsoever, Abraham, in sacrificing children. Now, <clears throat> we don't know how old Isaac was. There's all kinds of debate. What we are pretty sure of is he was not a child. The Jewish tradition says he could have been up to 37 years old. The reason they get that is because the next chapter, his mother Sarah dies 37 years after giving birth to him. Okay, but he's likely somewhere in his 20s. That's the, the average. So this is not a child, but it's still a young man. A young man who Abraham is about to kill. And Abraham uh, actions, God intervenes. And then he says this, now I know. Now I know that you, what? You fear God. Now I know that you fear God. What does fear mean? I don't know if you've done this. We, we read this word, don't we, in the Bible? And, and I've done this to my shame. We try to kind of make it more palliative, palatable. We try to make it more understandable. Well, God is not a God of fear. And we quote other verses, which are true. We try to say it's about respect. It's just about showing respect for God. Okay? It's not about fear. Wrong. Sorry, but that's wrong. It's not. It's about terror, and it's about fear. When you see that car coming, and your son or daughter is about to go in the road, do you respect the car? <laughs> no. You are terrified of what could happen to your child. And it's not breeding a terror of God. That's not what this is about. It's a terror, a fear of living your life and making choices that do not please God, and going down paths that are dark, dangerous paths. That's the fear. Are you afraid of really keep, of going in the direction you're going, Abraham? Because it's not a good direction. It's not going to end well. Do you fear the consequences of what could happen enough to stop 
and listen to me. And yes, there's respect. Respect to say, God, I trust you. I honor you. I stand in awe of you. I submit to you. That's what's happening here. Getting Abraham to the point where he stops going down crazy, crazy paths in his life. And he truly comes and understands who God is. Now I know that you fear me. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is where it all starts because you've not withheld from me your son. Then there's the revelation that God gives him. I want to draw this to a close. All of this too, I'm not going to mention the, the, the bit at the end where God promises him again all the blessings that's going to come. And all of this comes because let me just say this one thing. Abraham has come full circle, okay? He, he started with God. He started to, to follow God and listen to God's call. He, he kind of went off all kind of tangents and paths. And the interesting thing, let me just say this. At the end of this passage, Abraham goes back to Beersheba. I think he goes back to Beersheba to deal with something, to deal with something that he should have dealt with a long time ago. And how interesting that the very next chapter talks about the death of Sarah, his wife. So what are the lessons in this? Well, there's a couple of lessons I want to leave with you this morning. Um, what's Mount Moriah? He goes to Mount Moriah. Every, there's no accident in the Bible. <laughs> there's no accidental words in the Bible. We believe, don't we, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. God doesn't make mistakes, okay? There, everything is inspired. And so what is Moriah? The only other time we hear of Moriah in the Bible is here, in the book of Chronicles. In the book of Chronicles, King Solomon decides he's going to build a temple. God has given his father David the, the, the outline, the vision, the instructions. David was not going to do that. David passes that on to Solomon. And Solomon decides he's going to build a great temple for God. Where? Then Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Why did he do that? Because this passage, Genesis 22, this whole incident is burned deeply into the psyche of Jewish people. There's nowhere else you could possibly build a temple. And what do they do in the temple? They bring lambs goats and rams and other animals to do what? To sacrifice them to God. That's the basis that God accepts us. Not sacrificing our children, but by bringing an animal instead of and as a substitute in place of ourselves and all the foolish things we do in our lives that displease God. When we come to that temple, we don't come empty-handed. We come with our failures, our sins, our, all the stuff that we do, but we have a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is offered on our behalf. And all over the years, when they went up to Jerusalem, they went to Mount Moriah. Eventually, that mountain was given another name. By the time of the New Testament, it was called Mount Calvary. Same mountain, different temple, the Herod's temple, who goes up to Mount, uh, sorry, Mount Calvary? Who goes up Mount Calvary? Jesus goes up Mount Calvary. And ultimately, this passage is pointing forward to Jesus. 
He is the fulfiller of all things. That's what he said. The law and the prophets all come to their fulfillment in me. Genesis 22 is all about me. And when this father and this son are going up the mountain together, it's Jesus and his father going together. Not Jesus being forced to go, not the father sending the son, but the father and the son together going on Mount Calvary. When Jesus is on the cross, he's fulfilling Isaac, the lamb, and the ram. (laughs) All of it is fulfilled in him. And he's reminding us that it's not about sacrificing ourselves and our children, but it's about listening to God's provision. God will provide the lamb. And even on that act on Mount Calvary, when Jesus was dying and bearing your sins and my sins, the sins of the whole world, this chapter gives us a little glimpse into what was going on between the Father and the Son on Mount Calvary. And on the Mount on Calvary, as Jesus is, is taking our sins, his Father is with him. He's with him. Even when Jesus is crying out, where are you? His Father is with him. And we know that because the last words of Jesus on the cross are, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And on the cross, the Father and the Son are working together to save you, to save me. And that's what this passage is giving us a glimpse to. So as we conclude, let's just pause, let's pray before Johnny and the team come back up. Where, where are you today? I know you're in this building, but where are you in your journey with God? Are you struggling? Do you feel that you're going through a time of testing? Are you going down paths that are dangerous and dark, away from God, and nobody else knows apart from you and God? Are you playing games with God? Do you say you believe him, but when he, may, when he asks you to do something, will you put me first? Will you respond to this appeal for, for, for an offering to, to help your church pay its expenses? When God asks you to follow him and to give something up for him that's precious to you, do you hold on to it? Say, no, God, it's mine. It's not yours. Have you given your children over to God that he may use them to fulfill his purpose in life? Or are you holding on to your children saying, God, don't ask my kids to do anything I don't want them to? Where are you today in your faith? Abraham's faith was made complete, James says, by what he did. Are you willing to give it all? You're willing to say, God, I give you my life, I give you my family, I give you my finances, I give you my job, I give you all that's precious to me because it came from you in the first place and it all belongs to you. Help me not to hold on to stuff, God. Help me to be a generous person because you gave your son, you gave everything on Mount Calvary to save Maybe you're here today and this is a new story. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you've never understood why Jesus died on a cross before. 
Maybe you think that's unfair. Maybe you think that's unjust. Maybe you wrestle with it. Jesus went to that cross because he loved you. And all the mistakes and failures of your life, he took them all. And he said, I'll pay the price for all of it so you can go free to love and follow my Father. And if you've never taken that step, you've never come to Jesus and given your life to him, this would be a great day to do it. And there'd be people here afterwards to pray for you and help you take that step. So Lord, help us pray this story would live with us today and this week and the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.